Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're going to be continuing in our series on the church today. I have entitled our message, The Church in a Hostile World. Shut Sports, a major supplier of football helmets, issues the following warning on all their helmets and on their website's homepage. Warning, no helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. The warning label continues with some information about the symptoms of concussions and concludes by repeating the original warning. Then it says, to avoid these risks of playing football, do not engage in the sport of football. That is from the helmet manufacturer basically telling moms and dads all across America, don't let your kids play football. But if you want to buy this helmet, you can. But don't let your kids play football. A visitor to the website can't access any comment on content until he or she checks a box next to the words, please indicate that you've read and understand you know, this warning label. And that's why nobody wants to play football anymore, right? The NFL and the CFL are having going out of business sales during the offseason here. Moms and dads are finally saying no to youth football, to youth hockey, to youth soccer, all the sports prone to concussions, right? No, no, wrong. These sports are worth hundreds of billions of dollars collectively, probably over a trillion dollars. Very few people take these warnings seriously. One of our sons played sports. I remember his first concussion was in wrestling, and I think uh, I remember watching in a lacrosse field as he was actually knocked out for a few seconds. He was in eighth grade, I believe, playing with, vars- or playing with a, a JV team, and the other team had a senior in high school playing on a JV team, which I think there should be rules against. If you can't play sports well enough to make varsity, you shouldn't be playing as a senior against JV kids in eighth grade. Knocked him right out. And he kept playing sports. Try stopping him. Very few believe the dangers will ever visit them or their kids. But when they do, I think we'd all agree with the warnings on the helmet, we shouldn't be surprised. The gospel is very similar. It comes with a warning label. Follow Jesus, find forgiveness, go to heaven, be changed, take the narrow road, but here's the warning label. The narrow road is exclusive. It is narrow, which means it's not gonna be popular. It claims to be the only way to the only God, and that's not going to go over really well in a fallen world. That message will be consistently viewed as antagonistic and hostile to the majority viewpoint in all of world history. It has, and it will continue to be. They won't tolerate it. In fact, the world around us will tolerate any and all messages and viewpoints except an exclusive viewpoint, that we have the way. That was actually on the label. Did you know that? It was on the gospel label when you accepted it. I, get, I bet you didn't read it, but it was on the label. In fact, the original manufacturer, Jesus, actually said this. He said, you will be hated by all because of my name. 
He said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, the master, they will also persecute you. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. That's on the warning label from Jesus. They will kill you. They will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake, on the warning label. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Now just get rid of those Christians. You signed up. I mean, it was on the warning label. You signed up into a movement of martyrs. And yet we're shocked when it gets just a little scary around us, aren't we? Because we've been a little spoiled in the Western world. We've been a lot spoiled in the Western world. We've been very fortunate. This subject shouldn't be a surprise in this series. These are normal waters that we swim in as believers. It's the air we breathe. It's the soil that God has planted us in. We're going to live in a world that's typically hostile to our faith. So I want to look at how did it affect the early church in a world where we all kind of want to fit in? How should it be affecting us? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6. If you uh, take the Bible in front of you, about three-quarters of the way back, the New Testament starts, the numbers begin again, and it's on page 96. So page 96 in your New Testaments, page 96, Acts chapter 6, and we're going to read that chapter. It's a very short chapter. This is early in the history of the church. Now, we don't know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the timeline of the book of Acts, other than obviously it's post-resurrection. It starts soon after, you know, about 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. But some say this could be a couple years now into the early church, by the time we get to Acts 6 through 8. Could be a couple years into the early church. I'm not sure about that, but that's what some say. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, at this time... While the disciples were increasing in number, and it's still in Jerusalem here, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. We'll talk about that in a minute. Two different groups of Jews. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, the apostles are saying, we can't deal with this problem. We're busy out there preaching. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. These are like the first deacons. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parsimus, and Nicholas. Some great boys' names there, if you're pregnant. Proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I think some suggest possibly eight to 10,000 priests became believers in the early church. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and great signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. 
And they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Sanhedrin, same council that condemned Jesus. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Same game plan, false witnesses. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, are these things so? And then after this, you've got this really long sermon, which we will not read, but long, long sermon, and some not-so-nice words from Stephen towards his audience. And then verse 54 of the next chapter, it's on page 98, the end of chapter 7, right at the end of his sermon. Now when they heard this, his long sermon, which we're not reading, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, that wasn't the right thing to say. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep, which is a euphemism for death. First martyr. We're going to look at a, just a few points and then some applications for how we function in an increasingly hostile world. First, the early church, under constant threat, consistently chose boldness over silence. The early church, under constant threat, consistently chose boldness over silence. Now, I, I believe I've shared this story before that I'm going to share with you, but I just don't know of a better one, so I'm, I'm going to share it again because it's, it's coming from a place in the world where our brand of Christianity is not very welcome, and I think this is just an excellent way that sort of the underground church in China views the New Testament. So I want to share this. In the People's Republic of China, Leith Anderson writes this, the largest nation in the world and a billion people strong is what is called the three-self church. That is the state-approved church. He said several of us from Wooddale a couple of years ago were in Beijing, and we went to one of the services of one of the three-self churches. It was an old building built around the turn of the last century. We had a translator there. They sang hymns. Some of them were to Western tunes, which we knew. They read the Bible. They had prayer. There was a sermon, a Bible teaching. He said that I thought was fine. This is in the three-self church, state-run, Christian church. But they're not allowed to evangelize. That's part of the deal with the state. You can do your thing as long as your thing doesn't include persuading anybody else. There are about 50 million Christians in the People's Republic of China who've chosen not to be part of the three-self church. Now, this is actually quite old. Leith Anderson has since retired uh, some years ago, so I'm guessing this is at least 10 or 15 years old. I'm guessing the people that are not part of the three-self church are way beyond 50 million at this point. These people meet in house churches because they're convinced you can't be a Christian unless you evangelize, unless you're outspoken about it, unless you're trying to reach others. 
In other words, we can't make a deal with the state to believe what we want to believe and be silent. We just can't do it. They say that the two go together. If you don't evangelize, you're not a Christian. They would say that those uh, who are in the three-self church are not really Christians as far as the New Testament definition is concerned. And that fits right into what we're talking about with the early church. They were under constant threat, and yet they chose boldness over silence. They, they got it. And the three-self church, or I should say these, these people in the underground church in China get it. They get it that you can't be silent and be part of New Testament Christianity because a part of being a Christian is we believe that we signed up to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the whole thing. That started the whole movement. Jesus died, he rose again. And afterwards they understood what his death meant. It meant forgiveness and it meant a new life and eternity in heaven for those who trusted in him. We're witnesses of the resurrection and we signed up as those committed to spread that news because Jesus said that's what our movement is supposed to do. The early church knew and understood that mandate. In fact, if you survey the book of Acts just a little bit up until the passage we read, Acts chapter two, we talked about this passage a few weeks ago. The church is born at Pentecost. It starts. Acts chapter 3, right away, Peter and John heal a lame man. And after they heal a lame man, I believe in the temple area, they preach a sermon. They heal a lame man, they preach a sermon. Acts chapter 4, what happens? Because they preach the sermon, after healing the lame man, they're arrested. You know what they do after they're arrested? They preach to the court that arrested them. And then they're released with a warning. Like, you guys need to kind of knock this off. Here's the response in Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, we just can't top, stop talking about this. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but we can't. We can't shut up. Sorry. Sorry. Just to make it a little Canadian, sorry. We, we can't stop talking. Sorry. All right? It's, it's in there. And so, they, and so then they go from there to a prayer meeting of the early church. And, and notice what happened at the prayer meeting later on in the same chapter. All right? So they've been arrested. They've been let go. They said they were sorry. They said, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Will you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus? And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken like mini earthquake, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They heal a man. They preach a sermon. They're threatened. They're told, don't be doing that anymore. They said, sorry, but we have to. They go to prayer meeting and said, what we want to pray for is that we're not afraid of these people, that we have more boldness, and that's what happened. And God was pretty excited about it. Gave him a little earthquake just to confirm his presence. Chapter five, the apostles are arrested. Probably a bigger group of them. And uh, they're, they're in prison. And God breaks them out. Kind of a, something happened in the night. The doors are open to the prison. They get out. Actually, the doors weren't open. The doors are still locked. The jailer gets to the next day. Doors are still locked. Apostles aren't there. They headed right to their teaching gig. They didn't try to get out of town. They're keeping their schedule. They go right to their scheduled teaching gig and they're rearrested. 
It's like, I thought we had these guys. Well, here they are again. They don't make themselves scarce. Let's get them again. They get them arrested again. Chapter 5, verses 29 to 32. This sounds like the same passage. It's a bit of a rerun. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They said it again. We got a choice. Obey you or obey God. We must obey God rather than men. Sorry. It's in there again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, we are going to do what we are going to do. So they plot to kill the apostles. They're talked out of it by a wise Jewish man named Gamaliel. The apostles are beaten and released. You know, that's supposed to be a warning. They're beaten and released. So here's how they respond. Chapter 5, verse 41 and 42, right before we read about Stephen. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court that sentenced Jesus to death, same court, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's like, hey guys, how you doing? Well, man, I'm, I'm kind of hurting. But hey, we got the same treatment as Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Give me some, you know? What's wrong with these people? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Our faith ancestors didn't respond well to threats, did they? They were an uncooperative lot. Governments couldn't shut them up. Ecclesiastical authorities couldn't shut them up. And then chapter 6 opens with a problem, problem in the early church. And I think this whole little section about getting deacons is not really much of the purpose of chapter 6. We have more about that in Timothy and Titus about deacons and so on. But that segue is into Stephen about the continued persecution. So chapter 6 opens with a problem. There's two sets of widows in the early church, okay? You've got the Aramaic-speaking Jews who are like the, you know, they're the ones from around Jerusalem and uh, from around Galilee. They're the ones who live in Israel, Aramaic-speaking Jews. They're kind of the, the ones that kept the closer to the old language and the traditions that were given to them in the Old Testament. And then you've got the Greek-speaking Jews who've been scattered all over the Roman Empire, and they're the ones who have to travel a long way to come into these special feast weeks, like Passover and Pentecost and so on. Aramaic-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. you got kind of like two different churches The Aramaic-speaking Jews, they're the locals. The Greek-speaking Jews, they're kind of the liberals. You know, the the locals aren't sure if they can trust these Jews that have been scattered all over the Roman Empire, and they're a little biased against them. And so in this early church in Jerusalem, the locals were getting better treatment, and so the widows, who really were dependent upon the church for their care, maybe didn't have family to take care of them, they're dependent upon the early church to take care of them a little bit, to provide food for them. The apostles are the locals, and they're thinking, okay, we've got a problem here. We've got all of our widows, and we're kind of taking care of them, but we've got these widows from the sort of Greek-speaking world that have all traveled here, and they're staying here with this early church that started, and we need to take care of them as well. So for the fair distribution of food, especially for these foreign women who are widows and don't have families to take care of them, we're going to put together a group of, of people and we're going to call them deacons. 
But again, that's not really the main point here, but that's when it started. Stephen was one of those deacons. But Stephen really had a bit of a problem. He started working way outside of his job description. And Stephen's thinking, yeah, great, I'm really honored to be a deacon here, but I got skills. You know, I could be a teaching elder. And so he starts preaching sermons, and he's performing miracles, and God's hand is on his life in an incredible way. And he's preaching not in the local synagogues where you have the Aramaic-speaking Jews. He's preaching more in the Greek-speaking synagogues, the Hellenistic synagogues, where there's kind of the liberals, if you will. And some church leaders there are worried about their brand. They're worried about, okay, the conservative synagogues, the local ones around Jerusalem, aren't going to trust us because Stephen is saying all of this stuff about what Jesus did and what's going to happen with the temple and our relationship to the law now. And Stephen was kind of saying some of this stuff before the Apostle Paul was saying it in some of his epistles. So they try to get Stephen in trouble. So he's preaching in Jewish synagogues that aren't necessarily yet Christian because the apostles are still able to speak in some of the synagogues. The early church is taking the message of Jesus into their Jewish synagogues. Eventually, they're sort of persecuted out of them. This is during that transition period. So these synagogue leaders get Stephen in trouble. They narc on him, all right? And they send him to the same Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death. He stands before the same group that sentenced Jesus. And he might be a couple years later. He gives this sermon to that group. It was direct. It ended with this accusation. Now, these apostles didn't mince words. So this is how he ends his sermon, just to kind of twist the knife. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You know, how to win friends and influence people. It wasn't a book he had read recently. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So he basically says, people, you've been resisting God throughout our whole history. You killed all the prophets. You know, you're going to do the same to people who follow Jesus. And that led to his martyrdom. The only point I want you to see is that the DNA of the early church was that they could not be silenced. They were bold. Second point, Stephen paid the normal price of discipleship. If anyone wants to follow me, Jesus said, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To take up his cross was simply a statement that you're going to endure the same death I endured. The cross, death. Most of the 12 faced martyrdom. We know that John the Apostle uh, did not. Most of the 12 faced martyrdom. The crowd grabbed him after his sermon to the Sanhedrin now. So he got in trouble. They sent him to the, to the court, basically the same court that tried Jesus in the middle of the night illegally. They grab him. They, the, he gives this sermon to the court. He doesn't end it very cordially. The crowd grabs him. They rush him to the city's edge. In that part of the world, they're picking up chunks of limestone. So just imagine two to four inch in diameter pieces of limestone. 
and they start chucking him at Stephen. And eventually he's on his knees, he's getting hit in the head, he's getting hit in the face, he's looking into heaven, and they stone him. They gave the robes to a young religious leader, an up-and-comer named Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. But he was in on this, and they murdered Stephen for blasphemy, but really for being a Jesus follower. Jerusalem, the city of Jesus' miraculous atonement, his death and resurrection, could no longer tolerate the truth. And that legacy has continued. It wasn't long after that that Christians became outcasts in Roman society. They were viewed as a threat a little bit to Rome and its governmental system. They were dressed in animal skins and put in the amphitheater, the arena, and fed to lions. It was a great sport. They had to hide underground. History is full of uh, martyrs, and, and so is modernity. In the 19th century, I'm going to call that modernity for these purposes, in a book by their blood, James and Marty Hefley write about one of the great persecutions that you may not know about. It's sort of a mini-Holocaust. In the 19th century, Protestant evangelical missionaries brought the gospel to the Armenians with stirring freshness. This precipitated an evangelical renewal movement within the old Armenian church. At that time, much of Armenia was under a Turkish Muslim government. Conversion of a Muslim to Christianity was punishable by death. This law was lifted in 1856 and complete religious liberty was declared and a lot of Muslims became Christians in Armenia. The opportunity proved to be short-lived. In 1864, just a few years after the law was lifted, the Turkish government began rounding up and sentencing to prison Muslim converts to Christianity. From 1895 to 1896, government soldiers killed up to 100,000 Armenian civilians. In the spring, an attempt was made to kill every Armenian Christian within Turkish borders. Lawyers, doctors, clergy, and other intellectuals were rounded up and charged with subversion. Many had their heads placed in vices and squeezed until they collapsed. April 24th was the day that was set to kill the rest of the Armenians, who would be Christians. As many as 600,000 people may have died in one day. say, well, boy, it's a good thing we live in a better world today, isn't it? Yeah, not really. The population continues to explode on the planet. According to Open Doors, their 2023 world watch list of Christian persecution every day, 13 Christians are killed in the world because they're Christians. Every day, 13. Just do the math. Would it give us about 4,000 a year? Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Another five are abducted. The 2021 World Watch List says it's the latest annual accounting from Open Doors of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for following Jesus. The, nation lists, uh, the listed nations contain 309 million Christians. So out of about 8 billion people on the planet, 309 million are living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution up from 260 million the year before. Another 31 million could be added from the 24 nations that fall just outside the top 50 worst places to live if you're a Christian. And these would be Cuba, Sri Lanka, United Arab Emirates. So the ratio is one in eight Christians worldwide face persecution. One in eight. 
This includes one in six in Africa, two out of five in Asia. Last year, 45 nations scored high enough to register very high persecution levels and Open Doors 84 question matrix. This year, for the first time in 29 years of tracking, all 50 qualified, as did four more nations that fell just outside the cutoff. Now, again, this is a couple, I mean, this is just talking about the last couple of years. They identified three main trends driving last year's increase. Interestingly, COVID-19 was used as a catalyst for religious persecution through relief discrimination, don't give food to the Christians, forced conversion, and as justification for increasing surveillance and censorship. Persecution is in a bull market worldwide. And they are our brothers and sisters. Third, persecution creates an unexpected outcome. Gospel advancement. This is what I love about God. Chapter 8. So Saul is a young Pharisee at the time. He's holding everybody's coats while they murder Stephen. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, chapter 8. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this pushed Christians out of Jerusalem. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, I mean, he was really invigorated by this event, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Saul starts putting Christians in prison. They have to leave Jerusalem. And what did they do? They just took their disobedient selves with them. Couldn't shut them up in the next place either. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Jesus to them. Remember the purpose of Acts? The purpose of Acts is to explain how Christianity went from a Jewish, Jerusalem-centered religion to a Gentile, worldwide religion. If you don't have the book of Acts, you don't understand it. Acts explains how it happens. And this is the first transition. This is it. It's a big deal. Luke gets it. Saul the persecutor enters. Verse 4, the church is scattered. Verse 5, it goes to Samaria and other parts of Judea. Chapters 8 and 9, you start seeing Gentile conversions. And now you've got Saul introduced, who eventually becomes a believer and is the apostle to the Gentiles. Persecution was, in the mind of God, necessary and good, yet sinful and awful and murderous, but productive, productive, because it just pushed this church that couldn't be silenced everywhere. Back to Open Doors, that uh, article. You might think the list of all these countries that oppress Christians is about oppression, but the list is really all about resilience, stated David Curry, president and CEO of Open Doors, introducing the report released today. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. That's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You cannot keep true Christians down or silent. 
Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. He also predicted persecution and the one does not stop the other. What it actually does is create a purified form of the church because nobody wants to give up their life for Jesus if they don't really believe it. So a church under persecution doesn't have nominalism. It doesn't have your Easter and Christian or Christmas Christians because you're serious about it. There's no debates about deconstructionism in the persecuted church. There's no conversations about how to fit the new sexual conversation into the camp because we're dying for God's word here. They're dying for the truth of the gospel. They're dying for a commitment to scripture as believed for thousands of years. They're dying for a Jesus that doesn't mirror the culture but exposes the culture and that's why they're persecuted and it's worth giving up their lives to let people know there is a resurrected Jesus who can save us all. You can't shut them up. It doesn't matter what you do to them. It just makes them better. So how does that apply to us? Church in a hostile world, some applications. First, I think we need to revisit Jesus' initial warnings about following him. Because, you know, like a lot of things that we open at Christmas, we don't read the directions much. You know, oh, I can put this together. You know, I, I got this, honey. You know, three hours later, did you read the, the pamphlet, dear? No, no, no. A lot of us only got one side of the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, that's not a very good rendition of the gospel. He does love us. He has a plan for our life. Not sure how wonderful it's going to be. Might be better in heaven than on this earth, but on this earth, he said, you might die. You got to be willing to die. You got to be ready to die. The football helmet package says, football is dangerous. It leads to concussions. Don't play it if you want a safe life. The gospel packaging said, following Jesus is dangerous. Don't do it unless you're willing to die. Stay away. Find another God. Find another religion. Don't do it. It's true, but don't do it. Don't touch it unless you're willing to die. That's what you've signed up for. That's what I signed up for. We have been spoiled by freedom. Which leads us to my next point. Be thankful for freedom. Now, it's not what it used to be. I can actually get in a little trouble up here now in the Western world. It's kind of it's kind of exciting. You could be bailing me out of jail someday. That's a new thing. Kind of is exciting. When I was young, for those of you who are like 45 and under, you can't even relate to this world. When I was young, public institutions would rarely undermine the family and the church. You just, if you're young, you need to hear that. Public institutions, the government and the schools in particular, would not undermine the Judeo-Christian ethic in their spheres of influence. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because you're like, what world did you grow up in? Actually, well, it was the U.S., but Canada would have been the same way. I grew up in North America, where public institutions would never undermine the family or the church. That's what it was like when I was young. And Fred and Wilma Flintstone would come over and have dinner with us, and we'd talk about it. That world is long gone. 
In a recent article on the suffering church, FaithWorks listed the degrees of persecution one could face for practicing their faith. Okay, so I just, I thought about putting this list up, but just kind of keep this in mind. Because when I was young, here's what could happen. Disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform. You know, that's about as bad as it got. You know, you want to fit in, disapproval maybe. I remember a fourth grade science teacher gave me a little hard time about my views of creation. You know, she asked, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I said, well, God created chickens, and they laid eggs. And she said, we don't want any of that religious stuff in here. Well, thank you, Mrs. Shear. She knows better now. But that's about as bad as it got. But listen, as it progresses, loss of educational opportunities. That's happening. Economic sanctions, shunning. You ever been on social media and tried to have a conservative viewpoint? Alienation from community, loss of employment, that'll happen. You want to teach in a college in North America and have a view on creation that doesn't fit macro-revolutionary theory? Good luck keeping your tenureship. Loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence. You've seen what happens when a conservative speaker wants to go to a public institution or college and talk about even conservative politics, much less religion. The mob has no problem throwing chairs through windows and violating everybody's ability to have free speech. That's already going on. Harassment by officials, that's going on. Now the, the, the rest isn't really happening. Kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, and murder. That's going on in parts of the world, but not here. But we're in the middle phases here. We didn't used to be. Second, be careful about fitting in at all costs. You want to follow Jesus? probably needs to be a little tension in your life. Boy, I know that we want to just have everyone like us. I want everyone to like me. I, don't know, I know I don't do a great job at getting there. I really want you to like me. I want everyone around me to like me. Wrong cause to get that. Areas that need our voices. The whole discussion about human sexuality. We're not the problem in the culture. We're the cure. God's word is the cure. All the confusion that goes on in the current conversations about human sexuality and all the pronouns and not believing that you are what your biology says you are. Um, by the way, I have a pronoun, your highness. I'm trying to get my wife on that one. It's not working. But anyway, if we're doing the whole pronoun, anyway, never mind. All right, but the whole issue of sexuality, we need to have input into the culture. They need our voice. The value of life for the unborn, for the handicapped, for the elderly, which is increasingly becoming a problem here in Canada. Made needs our voice. Medical assistance in dying. I mean, I've heard of the conversations where, get this, you know, the, the veterans who are struggling with PTSD, now a few of them have been told, you know, why don't you just end it? Thank you for your service. You're messed up because of the situation we put you in. Now we just want to kill you. That makes me so furious. The people around you reflect one thing that gives them incredible value. They are made in God's image. It's what makes us different than everything else. And we carry that reflection no matter how flawed, no matter how broken. We're made in God's image. And society needs to hear that voice. Not from me, from all of us.
And the other tension in the culture is whose, whose kids are they? You know, when, when a kid can go and have a sex transformation without telling their parents, begin that process. When a kid can go have an abortion without telling their parents, even though it's a medical procedure. We're in a world where your children are not yours anymore, even in the Western world. That's a conversation our voices need to be heard in. Because last I checked, we helped create them along with God, and we, we take care of them until they're 18, and we should have a say. Sorry, government. They're our kids. We are too willing to just take it on the chin from the culture around us. And if we aren't speaking, who will? Who will? Be careful about fitting in at all costs. When we try to fit in at all costs, the world just runs us over and doesn't hear our voice. And finally, never underestimate a contagion called courage. I'm going to close with this. In his book, A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Justin Dillon relates the courage of a missionary couple who stood up against terrible travesty. In the late 1800s, Leopold II, the king of Belgium, started colonizing the Congo, a land rich with natural resources like rubber. At the same time, he demanded uh, the demand for rubber, bicycles and cars, was starting to spike. Within a few years, he was enslaving millions of African men, women, and children through armed forces. He was, you know, having forced labor, labor-intensive work of harvesting rubber. The pressure to fulfill the impossible rubber quotas fell on a brutal police force called the Force Publique to prove that the bullets Leupold provided were being used to kill unproductive slaves that he had put into this workforce. He required a severed hand or a foot. So in other words, if people aren't working the way they're supposed to, shoot them, but we need the evidence, so you need to cut off a hand or a foot. So the soldiers stockpiled baskets of hands and feet to account for the bullets. It was barbaric. No one dared to rebel, except a mild-mannered British missionary couple named John and Alice. God bless them. Both felt a divine call to this place to bring the love of Christ. They couldn't ignore the violence against the people they loved. So Alice had an idea. She grabbed her Kodak camera and started taking pictures, documenting the atrocities. She captured images of right hands cut off by uh, force public sentries. She documented mass graves. She filmed tribesmen shackled together in chains. And this young woman with no professional photography skills started collecting images to topple an evil king that she had never met. And Alice and John had no plan, strategy, certainty, or guarantee of success. In fact, her actions increased her chances of dying in the Congo. But news about the atrocities started to reach Europe. Churches. Town halls, university lecture halls, parlors, halls of government. There wasn't a room that Alice wasn't willing to bring her magic lantern show to. The people who came to witness her images, her pictures and stories were moved by this fearless woman. Her story spread, making its way to the writings of Mark Twain. Political and social pressure started to build against the Mad King's maniacal exploits and King Leopold II would ultimately be responsible for the deaths of close to 10 million people. But his stranglehold on the people of Congo came to an end. And it happened because of an unknown missionary and her cheap camera and a boatload of courage. Courage is contagious. Silence is not Christian. Be gracious. Don't be the problem. But be Christian. Have a voice like the early church. And you'd be shocked how much one voice emboldens other voices.
to make sure that the message of Jesus and the values of Jesus are shared in this world. God, we thank you for your word. This is tough for all of us because even I, even in this role, when I'm not here in these four walls, I'm not necessarily as bold as I am within these four walls. I want to be. I want everyone to know what I believe. I think we all want everyone to know, the people around us, to know what we believe. But we have the fear of being rejected. We have the fear of not fitting in. We don't want to be different. We don't want to be sanctioned. I pray that you would help us to just simply act like what we are. We're Christians. We're witnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God whose death, burial, and resurrection changes everything for us and for all who believe. Help us to do that in ways that represent you well, but help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.